Tonight we come in our study through the book of First Thessalonians. We come to chapter 3. And uh, it's important for us to understand again how chapter connects to chapter as we study through a book. And in the closing verses of First Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul was explaining how greatly he desired to visit the Thessalonians. We remind ourselves again what we've already discussed the first couple of weeks that we've studied this letter together. Uh, how Paul, in writing the Thessalonians, was very mindful that when he first visited them and established the church there, he was only there for a few weeks. Uh, I think it describes for us in the book of Acts that he was there over three Sabbaths. So it, it couldn't have been really all that long of a time that he was there. And then he had to go under very pressing circumstances, mainly an angry mob that was driving him out of the town. And you could understand how Paul felt that his work there was not really complete. It wasn't really finished. And he had a special urgency to say, I want to get back to my dear brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. I want to visit them. I want to encourage them. I want to minister to them. So here at the very end of chapter 2, he's expressing how much he wants to visit them and how greatly uh, the burden presses upon them, him to visit them. And, and that's the context with which he begins here, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Now again, Paul had explained in the previous chapter how much he wanted to be with the Thessalonians, but, but since Paul couldn't be there himself, he did the next best thing. He sent his trusted associate, his trusted companion and fellow worker, Timothy, to the Thessalonians. And, and as a matter of fact, Paul was so concerned to send Timothy to them that if you notice what he says there in verse 1, we thought it'd be good to be left in Athens alone. You see, for the sake of, Thessalon of the Thessalonians, Paul was willing to be left in the city of Athens alone. It cost him something to send Timothy to the Thessalonians, and he thought it was good to pay that cost. That's how much he loved them. And so he sent to them Timothy, who has this wonderful description, as you'll read there in verse 2, where it says, our brother and minister of God. Well, you all know what it means when Paul describes Timothy as a brother, right? A brother in the Lord, brother in the family of God. But he also describes him as a minister of God. Uh, now, it's helpful for us to understand because especially as that English word minister tends to sound in our ears and the cultural associations that go along with that, in many cultural situations in the English-speaking world, minister is sort of a high title, right? Someone who sort of has some status, and they're a minister, and they're a gospel. Oh, you should pay some special respect to the minister. I think it's kind of interesting, because actually the ancient Greek word that is translated minister really has nothing to do with any kind of status. It just refers to a person who's a worker. Originally, the word meant somebody who was a table waiter. You know, hi, can I take your order? What, would you, what kind of drinks would you like to start off with? And, and they'll bring you the food later on. But, but later on, it came to signify not just only a person who was a table waiter, 
but someone who really did any kind of lowly service. And that word was used habitually by the early Christians to give expression to the kind of idea that we were supposed to serve God and man in this humble way, the way that a waiter would serve on a table. And so this word just simply translates the idea of a humble worker. So when he says brother and minister, in no way is he using the term minister in any kind of exalted status. No, he's using it just very much describing somebody who's a humble worker. But what was the job of Timothy when he was there? Well, look at what it says there in verse 2. The job that he had there was to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. I love that. Paul wanted Timothy to do two things, to establish and to encourage the Thessalonians. And I'd like you to notice, both of those things are necessary in the Christian life. But establishing comes first. I would suggest to you that encouragement can really only come after we are established in the right direction. Otherwise, you're encouraged in the wrong course. In other words, first you get established in the truth and the right place you should be, and then you need encouragement to stay there and to persist on that track. And and so please understand, when Paul sent Timothy to the Thessalonians, it wasn't as if he was a suspicious man who was sending an inspector to the Thessalonian church to check up on them. No, no, that's not the idea there at all. Paul sent Timothy there to both establish and to encourage. Now, why did the Thessalonians need this special establishment and this special encouragement? Well, verse 3 tells you why. Notice it here. That no one should be shaken by these afflictions. Don't you find it interesting? Paul doesn't really describe what the afflictions are, right? By these afflictions. Apparently, everybody knew. When Paul said that phrase, these afflictions, the Thessalonians didn't have any doubt what he was talking about. They didn't turn to one another when that letter was first publicly written and say, what is he talking about, these afflictions? Oh, no, they knew. And so that no one would be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. You see, as the Thessalonians were established and encouraged, they would not be shaken by these afflictions. Timothy's ministry, when he came to visit them, it would help them to endure the present hardship that they have. Now, I like it, you know, every once in a while when I'm studying through a passage and I'll read Bible commentators who perhaps have some expertise in the ancient Greek languages, they'll bring up different little ideas that are suggested from the ancient Greek words there. That The ancient Greek word that's translated shaken there, it came from the idea of a dog wagging his tail. You know, like, like the dog would, well, that's shaking, of course, but it also has the idea of maybe, you know, flattering you a little bit. You know, um, you, you're, you're so happy to see the dog's tail that maybe you'll just be agreeable unto the dog. But the idea of just shaking in that sense, it really reminds us of this principle that without a good understanding of the truth concerning suffering in the life of the believer, we're in great danger of being shaken in our faith. So that's why Paul said, I don't want any one of you to be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Did you get the importance of what Paul's saying there? Paul wanted the Thessalonians to know that their time of present suffering was in God's control. Do you notice what he says there in verse 3? These afflictions 
were appointed to the Thessalonians. As part of the normal Christian life, Christians or believers, we use whatever term you want to use, they have an appointment with affliction. Now, you know, you schedule all kinds of appointments in your life, right? You need the appointment to get the haircut. You need the appointment to get your car worked on. You need the appointment to have the telephone man come to your house. You need all these different appointments that you have to make. Well, let me tell you, God has an appointment for you. And if it were possible, you would like to erase that appointment out of your your schedule. Wouldn't you like to? But it's an appointment with affliction. Now, we have to be honest about this. Some Christians believe that, that true believers shouldn't suffer affliction and that God only wants to teach us by his word and that God never wants to teach us through trial and tribulation. Now, look, I will say this, that there is a great deal of suffering that we could avoid in our Christian lives just by obeying God's word and God wants us to, to, to be spared from that suffering. I fully agree with that idea. I fully believe that if Christians would live lives of more obedience and greater faith, that they would simply be spared a lot of the suffering that they have in their Christian life. But the idea that if you were really right with God, God would never teach you through difficulty or through trials, I think it's just wrong. And for evidence of that, I would point to the life of Jesus Christ. Do you understand what Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 tells us about Jesus? It tells us that Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. In other words, God the Father saw that suffering was a good tool to use in the life of his own son, Jesus Christ. And if suffering was good enough to teach Jesus, it's good enough to teach us. God does teach the believer definite things through suffering. He teaches us perseverance. He teaches us obedience. He teaches us how to comfort other people. And he teaches us about deeper fellowship with Jesus in trials. You know, but that's not all. Right now, kind of in my own personal study, I'm studying through the book of Job. And right now, I just finished up sort of studying through Job chapter 3. Wow, what an amazing book that is. And in Job chapter 3, Job is letting it all out, right? He's, he, he's finally speaking out after sitting on an ash heap for some uh, seven days, you know, with his friends around him. And then finally, Job can't take it anymore. He, he lays out his complaint. And I would say nowhere in the book of Job, of course, does Job ever curse God. That's what Satan wanted to get him to do, right? And nowhere does Job curse God. But in chapter 3, he comes close. In chapter 3, he curses the day he was born. And then he curses the fact that he didn't die as a baby. And then he wishes he were dead. I mean, chapter 3 is intense. And then when you start to consider, Job is all confused and he cries out in Job chapter 3, Lord, why have you hedged me in? Why don't I have any light? Why can't I understand what's going on around me? And you know what's funny about that in the book of Job? We understand from reading the book, don't we? We understand what Job could not understand, that actually God had a heavenly purpose in what Job was going through, and that heavenly purpose was for him to teach angelic beings, both faithful angels and fallen angels, what God could do and would do in the life of his people through the way that God worked with Job. 
Now, Job couldn't see it when he was going through these sufferings, but we, as readers of the book of Job, we understand it. I'll tell you, Job had an appointment with affliction. And even though Job cried out to God and he couldn't understand it, and believe me, anybody's read the book of Job, your sympathy goes out with the book of Job. With, with Job, I should say, not with the book. Your sympathy goes out with the person of Job. But yet we understand that there was a purpose for it. God did have a wise and good plan. Now listen, some people believe that the only kind of affliction that a Christian should experience is persecution. But I want you to understand something. That there are two ancient Greek words used to translate the concept of suffering. And neither one of those words is used exclusively in regard to persecution. One ancient Greek word is philipsis, and it was used for things like physical pain and emotional hardships and suffering under temptation. Pasco, the other Greek word, was used for such things as physical sufferings unrelated to persecution, suffering under temptation, and hardships in a general sense. But listen, if we understand that God has a place for affliction in the life of the believer, it also means that we understand that affliction does not mean that God is angry at the believer. You see, the truth is, is that affliction means that God loves us enough to give us the best when we may only desire what is easy. I have some friends who grew up in a home where every day they had the ritual with their parents of taking the cod liver oil. I've never tasted cod liver oil. I can't tell you what it's like, but I hear it's absolutely wretched. And that every day, you know, mom would take the spoonful of cod liver oil and the child would have to take it. Now, why? Why does the mother make the child do that? Because of some sadistic pleasure? Well, perhaps in a few cases, but hardly ever, right? It's out of love for the child, right? It's out of this desire for the best of the child. Now, I would understand how that would be very difficult for the child to comprehend. But no, God, like a loving mother, is towards the child. God knows how to give his children what is best, even when they desire only what is easy. And let's remember something. The symbol of Christianity is a cross. It's not a nice, big, fluffy feather pillow, right? Affliction is just part of following Jesus. And therefore, Paul recognized that Christians were appointed to affliction. But if you notice, as he goes on to verse 4, he also points out that affliction should never surprise the Christian. He says, for in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, as you know. You see, Paul told the Thessalonians when he was with them that suffering is part of the Christian life. He warned them that they would suffer tribulation. Even though he was with them only a few weeks, he taught them about the place of suffering in the Christian life. And of course, he promised, he said, this is true, you're going to suffer tribulation in your Christian life. I find that interesting that Paul taught that to a group of new converts within the first few weeks of their Christian life. You're going to suffer tribulation. Sometimes I think Christians give the wrong impression to people in their evangelism. We we give people the impression that, well, come to Jesus Christ and he'll take all your problems away and all your days will be sunny and the flowers will always bloom and you'll never have snow in the winters and all that kind of thing. Well, listen, we just know that it's not true, right? 
We remember Jesus' parable of the soils. Do you remember that when he described the, the, the farmer who went out and cast the seed on the different kinds of soils? And he described the way that some of those seeds, they, they took root, but they fell away when tribulation or when persecution came up because of the word. I want you to notice that when Jesus gave that parable and when he explained it, he said that when tribulation arises, he didn't say if it arises, the Christian faith will be tested. And Paul knew this, so as a good pastor, he warned the Thessalonians. And so now continuing on here into verse 5, he says, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. You see, Paul could barely endure the thought that the faith of the Thessalonians might crumble under this season of affliction. I mean, Paul was away from them. He had founded that church, and he knew that they were going through a difficult time. And he says, are they standing strong? Or are they being established and encouraged? And so he sent Timothy both to check on them, but more importantly, to help them. And he says, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. You see, Paul recognized that the tempter, that is Satan, wanted to exploit this season of suffering. As in the case of Job, Satan wanted to tempt the Thessalonians to give up on God. I find it very interesting here. When, when, when Paul describes the place of suffering in the life of the Christian, when he says, for we are appointed to this, in verse 3, I think he's saying that God appoints the believer to suffering, but yet here in verse 5, he's very clearly pointing out that Satan would like to take advantage of it. I want you to consider that for a moment. I think sometimes we as Christians, sometimes, we spend a lot of vain time, useless time, trying to decide if a particular trial is from God or from Satan. Sometimes it's hard to figure out, right? Oh, is this from the devil or is this from the Lord? You know, is this something from the devil that God wants me to rebuke? Or is this something from the Lord that God wants me to receive? Listen, sometimes there's value in discerning that from the Lord. But I would say this, sometimes don't even bother with that. Sometimes what God wants you to receive is just this idea that, look, you're in a trial and God wants to use it and Satan wants to use it. Who are you going to give the victory in the midst of that trial? Yes, even though they were appointed to affliction, Paul was afraid of what Satan might do in it. And he says there in verse 5, his big fear was that our labor might be in vain. You see, the idea there is that if the Thessalonians did waver in their faith, Paul would consider his work among them to have been in vain. Go back in your mind to the parable of the soils, where Jesus described the seed being cast out by the farmer. Jesus described the seed that withered and died under the heat of trials. If the Thessalonians withered, if they died, Paul's hard work as a farmer among them would have borne no harvest. Now, Paul just didn't sit back and worry. Like, oh, I hope the Thessalonians don't fall. Oh, I'm so worried about that. No, he did something. He prayed. He wrote a letter. Most importantly, what does he say he did here? He sent Timothy. He did something to help prevent the Thessalonians from falling under their affliction. He sent Timothy to them because those who are in affliction need the help of other godly people. Now, going on here, he's going to describe more about this visit from Timothy, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, 
and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, and we also to see you. All right, let's pause right there before we go into verse 7 to see what Paul is talking about. He's talking about that when Timothy came back, he brought good news. When Timothy returned from his visit to the Thessalonians, he brought good news to the Apostle Paul, the, the good news that the Thessalonians were doing well in faith and love, and that Paul helped them to do even better with the letter that he wrote, this very letter that we're studying right now. And so here it is. He said, listen, when, when, when Paul heard that the Thessalonians were thriving in faith and love, listen, what, what more do you need to thrive in in your Christian life, right? Well, here's a believer over there. They're strong in faith and they're strong in love. Well, that sounds like a great Christian life to me, doesn't it to you? And so Paul was so encouraged by this. It was good news. Very good news to Paul. Now, let me just make one side note. Have you ever heard of the idea of this um, ancient Greek word that is sometimes translated evangelism or to preach the gospel? It's really the, the word just to announce good news. Well, this is the only place where Paul uses that ancient Greek word of good news, not in the sense of preaching the gospel, but just in the sense of announcing good news. But it shows you what the idea is. When we're out preaching the gospel, we're preaching good news. Now, the good news that Paul received about, from Timothy was about the spiritual condition of the Thessalonian Christians, but the good news that we preach is about what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. And so Paul was so happy to hear this. He was also very happy to hear, if you notice here in verse 6, that you always have good remembrance of us. Now, please don't think for a moment that Paul was one of these insecure people that walked around worried about what other people thought about him. And, oh, I hope they like me. I hope they really, really like me. I hope that, that you don't think that that was the idea there in the mind of the Apostle Paul. No, Paul was concerned because if the Thessalonians began to reject him, they would reject the gospel. And, and so Timothy brought the very good news that the Thessalonians had not believed the vicious and the false rumors that were going around about Paul. The rumors that he didn't love the Thessalonians. The rumors that Paul was a coward. The, the rumors that Paul was in it just for the money that he could get from the Thessalonians and all of these other things. And this good news, when Paul was writing from the city of Corinth, in all likelihood he wrote this letter, but when, when Paul received this good news, oh, it, it was like medicine to his soul. Look at it here, starting at verse 7. He says, Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God. And see, Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonians from the city of Corinth. And it's very interesting to read in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians what it was like when Paul came into Corinth. He said that I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. You know, Paul was not walking upon the heights of spiritual victory when he walked into the city of Corinth. He was weak, he was afraid, and he was trembling. Yet, while he was at Corinth... Now, please, did you catch this, the, the, the cycle here? Where was Paul when he sent Timothy? He was in Athens, right? So Paul's in Athens, he sends Timothy. 
while he's in Athens, he decides to go to Corinth. And so when Timothy comes back to Paul, Timothy comes and meets him in Corinth. And Paul's in the very discouraging season when he's there at Corinth. He's weak, he's afraid, much trembling. The Corinthians aren't really seeming to respond to the message. But when Timothy came back to Paul in Corinth, Paul had a renewed strength, a renewed freshness of life. Do you see what he says there in verse 7? He says, for, for now, excuse me, verse 8, he says, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. I mean, to me, I just picture it so vividly in my mind. I picture Paul in Corinth so discouraged. You know, he's trying to do ministry, he's trying to, preach the gospel. He's trying to teach this few group of Christians that are there in Corinth, and it's not going very well, and he's discouraged. And then he sees Timothy, and he's so excited just to see Timothy again. But then when Timothy says, Paul, I've got great news for you. That church in Thessalonica is doing great. You wouldn't believe how strong they are in faith and love. And when Paul heard that, his face went from depressed and gloomy and blue to so excited, it was like he was born again, again. And it was very refreshing for Paul to hear this. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, never is the servant of God so full of delight as when he sees that the Holy Spirit is visiting his hearers, making them to know the Lord and confirming them in that heavenly knowledge. On the other hand, if God does not bless the word of his servants, it is like death to them. To be preaching and to have no blessing makes them heavy of heart. The chariot wheels are taken off and they drag heavily along. They seem to have no power or liberty. Well, Paul was in that depressed state until Timothy came with the good news from the Thessalonians. And then what did he want to do? Well, you saw it right there in verse 9. He wanted to give thanks. For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before God. Paul's thanks and his joy overflowed because he knew that the Thessalonians were standing fast in the Lord. Listen, uh, Paul was very blessed by the idea that they were materially, excuse me, not materially, spiritually prospering there in the city of Thessalonica. And so what did he do? He prayed. Look at verse 10. Night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. You see, Paul heard the good news from Timothy, but it wasn't enough. He wanted to share in this by prayer. And so he wanted to see the face of the church family in Thessalonica. He, he wanted enough to pray for them night and day, exceedingly that God would open up a door. You know how it was for the Apostle Paul, right? There he is in Corinth. He gets this great visit from Timothy. He's so excited about what's going on. And then what instantly does he want to do? He wants to visit Thessalonica himself just to see what the Lord is doing there. But not only that, to impart something to them. Look at what he says there in verse 10. That we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now I want you to notice this. Were the Thessalonians doing good? Absolutely they were doing good. But let's understand how long had any of these people been Christians? That church had only been founded a couple of months beforehand. What, two, three, maybe four months? We can't give an exact number, but I mean, certainly less than six months. So let's not, let's not forget this. They were doing great for people who had been Christians for four or five months. But still, obviously, there was much lacking in their faith that Paul wanted to minister to. 
And so Paul wanted to complete what was lacking in their faith. He wanted to pour himself out there in ministry. I want you to notice Paul's attitude wasn't, well, they're doing good for now so I can just forget about them. No, 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 that was not his idea at all. He said, they're doing good now. It makes me want to pray for them more and it makes me want to visit them even more. Well, I mean, the news of it all, though, is that Paul could not visit them personally, could he? So what did he do? He wrote this letter that we're studying right now. He wanted to give them that kind of ministry because that letter could reach him, reach them even before the Apostle Paul could. Now, in the last few verses here of our chapter, we have this great prayer that Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. But we get the whole flow of the chapter, right? Paul first explains why he sent Timothy, why he was concerned, the good news he got about Timothy. He heard that the Thessalonians were in affliction, that God had appointed. He didn't want them to be shaken by this affliction. But yet when he heard the news back that they were doing well, Paul was so encouraged by it, so filled with thanksgiving, it made him want to visit them all the more. But since he couldn't visit them immediately in his body, he said, I'm going to visit them immediately in prayer. And here's the prayer that he prays, started at verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. You see here, Paul is beginning a passage of what we might call written prayer, right? He told the Thessalonians what he was praying for them. So he says, may God our Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. You see, Paul was encouraged at the current state of the Thessalonians and by the fruit of Timothy's ministry among them, yet he still wanted to see them and he still knew, God, you're going to have to open the door. You're going to have to direct my way to the Thessalonians. You see, Paul valued the ministry other people could bring to them and the ministry they could do among themselves. But as an apostle, he had a great heart to go and bring his own apostolic influence and instruction to the Thessalonians. You know, I have to say that sometimes I feel the same way that, you know, even though it's wonderful for us to encourage one another in the Christian life and to pray together and all of that is wonderful and good, we still need to be under constantly apostolic instruction. And where do we find apostolic instruction? Where can you go today and get the ministry of the Apostle Paul in your church? Well, you can do it just as we're doing it right now. You can study what what the New Testament tells us, the ministry of the apostles and prophets from the writings of the New Testament. Of course, we don't neglect the Old Testament either. But I'm just trying to communicate to you that we need to be under this apostolic influence because the church is founded upon the apostles, with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. There's something significantly unique about the first century apostles and prophets, and their unique ministry is preserved for us in the New Testament. And so, uh, Paul continues on in his prayer, verse 12. He says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. I think this is wonderful. What did Paul say way back earlier in the chapter of the good news that he had? Verse 6, he says, Now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love. So was the Thessalonian church doing good in the area of love? Yes, they were. But what did Paul pray for them? You saw it right there in verse 12. He prayed that they would abound in love to one another and to all more and more. Please notice this. The Thessalonians were not 
a loveless church. They were a church marked by love, but they still had room to grow in love because love is always the essential mark of the Christian faith. You know, Jesus spoke of this essential place of love in the Christian life as an identifying mark of the Christian. This is what he said, John chapter 13, verse 35. He said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Isn't that amazing? Do you understand what Jesus did when he said that? Jesus spoke to all the world right there, and he said, hey, world. If you want to know whether or not these people are really my followers, look and see how they love one another. If they love one another, then you should take it seriously when they say they're my followers. If they don't love one another, then I don't know, you shouldn't take it very seriously. You see, the Apostle John also emphasized this principle. Listen to this from 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. He said, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You see, now you understand why Paul, even though the Thessalonians were doing good in love, Paul prayed that their love would increase and abound to one another and to all. Now, I love that. Because he says here, first of all, that it would abound to one another. In other words, in the family of God, right? That's where love begins for believers, right? But it doesn't end there. Your love for one another and for all. That's where our love needs to be. Yes, first love one another in the body of Christ. If you've got a problem with love in your Christian life, work on it first with your brothers and sisters. But don't let it stop there. It also has to go out to a needy world. And then Paul says something at the end of verse 12 that I think is really wonderful. It's remarkable and wonderful all at the same time. He says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. I don't, can you imagine that? I'm, I'm amazed at the audacity of the Apostle Paul. How many people do you know who would go and they would say, Now listen, I want you to go love other Christians just the way I do. That... That's a pretty heavy claim, isn't it? But shouldn't we be able to do that? Shouldn't you be able to go to a young believer and say, listen, um, I know you're young in the faith and and you kind of need to see how this Christianity gets lived out. You just watch me in the way that I love other people. You're not going to see me be perfect, but you know what? I I think you'll see me pointed in the right direction. Love other people the way I do and, and you'll learn a lot. Paul daringly set himself as a standard of love to be followed. And we ourselves, we should live such Christian lives that we could tell young Christians as well, love other people just the way that I do. Finally, the last verse of the chapter here, Paul concludes this little section of prayer, this little three-verse prayer where he let the Thessalonians know what he was praying for them. He says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. You see, Paul knew that God wanted the Thessalonians to have their hearts established blameless in holiness. You see, the idea behind holiness is to be set apart from the world and unto God. The the genuinely holy person is separated away from the dominion of sin and self and the world, and they're separated unto God. So they were to have their hearts blameless in holiness. 
before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Saying all of this reminded Paul of Jesus' return because I have to say, nothing can encourage us to holiness like remembering that Jesus might come today. Now let me sort of wrap it up with examining three certain things that Paul emphasized in this prayer that are important for every single Christian today. First of all, Paul wanted to be with them so that they could benefit from his apostolic wisdom and authority. Right? That's what he said in verse uh, 11. Uh, May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Paul recognized there the importance of apostolic authority in the Christian life. Secondly, he wanted them to abound in love. That's verse 12. And then verse 13. He wanted them to be established in true heart holiness. Now, these things combined together, that makes for a healthy Christian life. And you can see the wisdom, you can see the inspiration behind Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. Well, it's a short chapter, so we leave it off here tonight. But let me just leave you with one last encouragement. I'm sort of struck here at how Timothy went and was a blessing to these people, establishing them and encouraging them. Well, you might want to think about this. Who might God have you to be a Timothy for? Who might God want you to be towards them, someone who establishes them and encourages them? I've got to think that that's something that every person in this room can do. But if you're anything like me, what you might be saying is, well, who? You know, okay, Lord, I'll do it, but who? Well, you know, I think that if you just make it a prayer, God, show me. You match me up with that person that you want me, at least for a season, probably not for the rest of your life, but just for a season in your life, you're going to establish them and encourage them in their Christian life. Lord, you show me that person and I'll be like a Timothy to them. You can see how much good it did for Paul to send Timothy and to do this work among the Thessalonians. I think God can do just a work by sending you as a Timothy to somebody else. So let's pray and ask God to do that. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for just sort of the great pattern of ministry that we see here exemplified in this letter to the Thessalonians, especially this third chapter. And so, Father, we see the great love and concern that the Apostle Paul had for the Thessalonians. We see how you used Timothy, and we see how you wanted, Lord, uh, Paul to pray for them. So, Lord, just remind us of these things. Sort through the the truths of this chapter for us in the coming days. Confirm these truths through our hearts, Lord. And show us specifically by your Holy Spirit who and how you want us to live this out. uh, What kind of connection to what people, Lord, so that we can be your servants for your glory. We pray this, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.